Here we are now with episode number two of our series, You Are the Chosen One. Harry is on the train off to this new world and he gets thrown into the thick of it at this new school, Hogwarts. And the teachers march in all the new students after their journey across the enchanted lake. And they get told they're going to be put into their houses. And this is done via the sorting hat. And Harry is quite afraid, he's quite nervous about the sorting hat. Because he's thinking to himself, oh, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. Don't put me in the house of Slytherin. Because he's already heard that Slytherin are a little bit shady. They're sort of the bad guys of the groups. But if we zoom out just a little further before we get into that, we can say, well, this whole idea that people can be put into categories is something that exists in this magic world. And it exists in the magic world that it doesn't exist like it does in the muggle world, or the world of Mr. and Mrs. Dursley. In the conservative world, you're either a weirdo or you're not. There's only two categories. And in this magical world, well, things are a little bit more nuanced. People are categorized by their virtues. They're categorized by their personality characteristics. And if you're in Hufflepuff, then you've got this sort of set of characteristics. And if you're in Slytherin or what's the other one? Gryffindor and Ravenclaw. Haha, <laughs> I've remembered them all. Well done for me. I haven't remembered all the virtues, though. <laughs> That would be another level of detail, another level of Harry Potter trivia. So, so ask yourself if you can name all the different virtues of all the houses. The Ravenclaw are clever. The Gryffindor are brave. The Hufflepuff are intelligent, are they? And then Slytherin, well, no one likes Slytherin, so... Whatever. But this same sort of idea of categorizing humans, people, based on their virtues, is seen in many different ways in the world of magic. For example, you can be categorized by your star signs. I'm a Gemini, Libra, Scorpio, Cancer, and so on. And each of those star signs, each of the star signs has a profile, much like each of the houses. And furthermore, we can use developmental psychology. We can say spiral dynamics categorizes people by color. So you've got red and blue, yellow, green. And each of those colors has a set of characteristics that are going to decide that the people should go into those categories. 
And the thing that puts you into the category is the thing, in this case it's a hat, that knows you better, better than you do. And Harry's afraid of this sorting hat because he knows there's something in him that might make it good for him to be in Slytherin. But there's another thing in him that really doesn't want to be in Slytherin. And the sorting hat, well, it can read your mind. And furthermore, it can see deeply into your mind in such ways that you can't. And this is exactly what's happening when someone puts you into a star sign or they put you into a psychological developmental model. So that's something to be aware of. Another critical moment happens in Harry's first moments, first few hours at Hogwarts, which is that he sees Dumbledore up giving his start-of-term speech. And basically, he just says some magic words that don't seem to make any sense at all to Harry, and that's it. And he turns to his friend Ron and he says, what, that's, what's that all about? And Ron says, well, he's a genius. And then Harry looks down at his dinner plate to see the feast of the food that's all arrived. Now, in that one moment, that one little line, that one announcement from Dumbledore, we see the entire picture of what it's like to be in another world. And that is that you have a leader, you have a father figure, or you have some, the head chef, as we should say. And he is orchestrating. He's running the joint. He's the boss. And he simply says a few words and things happen. And I'm here to tell you that this other world does exist. And in some ways, for a child to be around the age of 11 or 12, to go off to high school, they go to a new school in the West. Of course, it's different in each country how the schooling systems are organized. But here in the West, most of the time, there's a change somewhere around the age of 11 or 12 to a new school. And we call that here in Australia high school. Or you might call it middle school in America. And that is like being sent off to a new world because you have new teachers, you have new subjects, a whole bunch of new friends, a new environment, and there's no explicit sorting hat. Well, actually, we did have houses in my school, and that was for the sports organizing. We didn't get sorted by a magic hat that could read our minds. We were sort of just put in by, I don't know what, I don't know what the process was, actually. I don't think it was star signs or psychological development. <laughs> Most likely not. But we did still have houses. So in many ways, going off to high school is like going into a new world. But here I am telling you that there's actually a deeper world. There's a world of magic. There's a world which is 
as magical as the world of Harry Potter, the world of Hogwarts. And there are real live wizards. There are real people that actually do things that can only be said as nothing short of magic. For example, one of the most famous institutes of magic is the Esalen Institute. And this is an example of a real-life Hogwarts. For the record, I have not been there, but I am practiced enough in certain methods to know, to be able to see when a school is a magic school. And if we back up even further than that, there, are, there is a history to the, the, the school, the, the mystery school, we call it. We don't call it the magic school, but the mystery school. And this goes back to George Gugiev. And George Gugiev was a famous guru who pioneered this idea of the mystery school. And basically, he says, well, the normal schools we have don't go far enough and they don't get deep enough into teaching us all there is to learn about human potential. So what we need to do is collect up wisdom from multiple cultures, refined wisdom, which is deep, and then we need to bring it all together into a school so people can come and practice the different components. And this has been done by many people. And that doesn't mean to say that it's by any means common to find a real true mystery school. Well, it's, it's, it's a mystery. It's a journey. And it takes an intuition. It takes a searching. You really have to hear the call. And they're really not common which ties in with our main theme that you are the chosen one. Mystery schools are only for an elect few. There's something very special about a student in a mystery school. And one of the most famous mystery schools is the Esalen Institute. And this is a non-for-profit retreat center in America. It's still active. It was founded by Stanford graduates Michael Murphy and Dick Price in 1962. And it was inspired by the ideas of Gurdjieff, of bringing together multiple disciplines for the advancement of the human potential. And one of the things that the Esalen Institute does is called Gestalt Practice. And Gestalt practice is nothing short of magic. It's a real-life magic. And Gestalt practice, well, let me explain a little bit about it. Let me really, let's really set this out so you can understand what we mean by magic. Because, well, when we get into any conversation about magic, and this is a big philosophical question, we can say, well, what is magic? And that's one of the things that, that's one of the philosophical intuitions that Harry Potter as a novel series tickles in us. 
It's something that subconsciously or in an implicit way really does make us wonder. And it really does, well, any good fiction is really meant to open up the magic for us, the magic of the world for us. So here, the Esselin Institute, I'm saying that this is the real life Hogwarts and in it, the real life magic happens. And one of the real life wizards would be someone who's doing this thing called gestalt practice. So this was, in, this was invented by a psychologist by the name of Fritz Perls. And what this would be, would be you'd go in and you'd sit down in a chair across from Fritz Perls. And he would sit there and he'd actually look a lot like a wizard. He's got his beard and he's got his pipe. And he might have a pocket watch. He might have a walking stick. He's a bit of a Dumbledore himself. And Fritz Perls will sit in a chair opposite you, and what you'll do is you'll have a conversation. And something very strange will happen. You won't be able to say what. You won't be able to say how he's doing it. And he might even explain it to you, what he's doing. But something will happen which will be spooky. It will be un able to be explained. It will be impossible to explain in just normal terms. And that is the magic of gestalt practice. And if you learn a little bit more, well, then you can learn to understand it. You can have it come to make sense. Which is, well, he's actually just drawing your attention to the immediate moment. And he's pointing out your immediate mannerisms, your immediate symptoms. And this is an awareness technique. It's a therapeutic awareness technique, which draws your attention to what's happening to you right now. And it's very therapeutic. It opens up a lot. It can change you in ways which are quite astonishing. And that's why we, and that's why it feels like magic. That's why it feels like a miracle. So the Esalen Institute is a, it's a huge institute with all sorts of facets to it and all sorts of components to it. And just like Hogwarts, it has multiple departments all to do with magic. And it doesn't call it magic, it calls it the human potential movement or the new age movement or the Eastern religious philosophy, alternative medicine, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of its own terms. They're different terms for what we would say if we were talking about Hogwarts. But it's the same thing. It's essentially the same thing. And Harry turns up at Hogwarts, and what happens? He learns magic, you know. He's got his classes, he got, he's got charms, he's got transfiguration, He's got potions, defense against the dark arts, herbology, history, divination, care of magical creatures. And this whole thing of magic is, well, it's not exactly just magic as in you do it and then it happens. There's actually an effort there. They're here for an education. And that's one of the funny things. That's one of the funny insights about magic is, well, 
No, you have to learn the history. And there's this scene in the movies where Hermione is saying, no, it's a swish and a flick. And you have to really refine how you use your wand. And you really have to pronounce it Wingardium Leviosa. Not Wingardium Leviosa. And that's one of the arguing points between Hermione and Ron. And she, he's, he's going, oh, she's such a know-it-all. Oh, what a show-off. Just, just get out of here. And he's really scruffy about it. But what does this say about magic? Because it means, well, magic isn't just as simple as one, two, three. Clap your fingers and then it happens. You do have to learn. And they start with transfiguration. Hermione's saying, well, we just start with small things like turning a match into a needle. So for really big things, well, that's for the advanced class. So there's still a scale of competency in the world of magic. And as for Dumbledore, well, he's the one that runs the joint. And what does he do? He just says a few words and the entire feast comes to life. The entire feast is there. So that is amazing. That is good bang for your buck. That is very high competency. But there is something, actually, which we don't find out until much later. And because we're doing this as a retrospect, and we have actually read all of the Harry Potter books, we can now look at this scene with different eyes, because what we find out later is that there are some elves in Hogwarts working day and day night, day in, day out, day and night, underneath the great hall where this feast is. And so what Dumbledore's actually done is he's just said the word and all their hard work has popped up into the place where the kids eat it. And the elves, well, they've been cooking, they've been cleaning, they've been doing the recipes, they've been organizing things, they've been working out the menu, they've been doing all the supplies, they've been doing the inventory, they've been making sure the, all the food safety things are right, you know, they've got to do their temperatures, they've got to do their different date coding They've got to do their different things. All sorts of work from, from hundreds of elves. All these hundreds and hundreds of elves are working. And yet Dumbledore just says a few words and the magic is there. And that says that magic takes a lot of work. and There's a lot behind the scenes that you don't see. Now, there is another example of a real-life Hogwarts that I'll share with you. Just to really illustrate this difference, or this, this I shouldn't say difference, I should say the, the parallel between Hogwarts and the real-life Hogwarts. I'll tell you another one. And this is the Isha Foundation. So the Isha Foundation, I-S-H-A, is in India, and it's founded by a man called Sadguru. 
And he is a living, working Dumbledore. He's a real-life wizard. And his institution has over 2 million people working in it. And if you go to one of his workshops or his institute or one of his locations, there are multiple locations, then you get a taste of the mystery school. And they're doing multiple things. They're doing yoga, they're doing tai chi, they're doing archery. And a lot of the courses, well, his institute has shorter courses. So it's not like school where you go off for a few years. And it's also designed for people who are slightly older. But they're shorter courses. So you might do a five-day program or a 10-day program or a two-week program. And that's the most popular side of it. But then there's also the, the side where he is actually experimenting with young adolescents and putting them through school processes of his own. And they do things which are different to the normal education system. They do things like karate, meditation, certain literature studies, music, creativity. So this is someone who has a wisdom which is beyond the education system of governance, of the state of a country. And he's got the wisdom to say, well, now that government state or whatever, whoever is running the education system in whichever country, okay, that's one way to do it, but here's, here's another way to do it. And we do find out later in Harry Potter that there are multiple schools. And of course, at this point in our narrative, Harry isn't even close to realizing that. He's just trying to come to terms with the school that he's in, in this new place. And it's a whole new world for him. It's a whole new set of discoveries. And he still has this thing of, well, how do I do this magic? You know, he's going to these classes and he wants to be a good student. And there's this great scene in the movies where he has this class with Professor Snape. And Snape walks in and he's saying all these things about how powerful potions can be. Snape is the potions teacher. And he says he can even put a stopper in death. He can even stop you from dying. And in a certain way, we do have potions which can stop us from dying. Depending on your condition depending on the circumstances. And the equivalent of our world potions would be medicine. And you can see here that it's not a black and white comparison. Medicine is not a magic pill. And these are such broad facets of We should say, we could say, the human civilization project, that it is very hard to compare them. But I thought I'd point out the Esalen Institute and the Isha Foundation, 
so that you can more understand what I mean by this thesis of you are the chosen one. Because if you are the chosen one, it's up to you to discover a mystery school. It's up for you to hear the call to find something deeper. The people that go to these schools have received a call to fill a deeper potential, to find a deeper part of them, and to open, ultimately, to the magic of life. So at the school feast, they sing the school song, and everyone sings at a different place, at a different pace. And the Weasleys, the Weasley twins are the last to finish because they sing a very slow version. And there's something very nice about that. There's something of great celebration of the individual. And Dumbledore, Dumbledore after that says, Ah, music, a magic beyond all we do here. So music is magic. And that is a deep realization to have. And Harry keeps getting the feeling, as we move along in our plot, he keeps getting the feeling that everyone's talking about him, like whispering, oh, look, this is the Harry Potter. And there are a whole bunch of different things that he gets into, like Hermione learns to fly, but she realizes that, well, actually, a book isn't going to help her. And she's saying this to herself as they're learning to fly in the first Quidditch match, in the first Quidditch class. And this scene in the movie where Malfoy goes off and he takes the Remembrald, this little object from Neville, and Harry ends up catching it. And there's a significance to that because Harry remembers what it means for him to fly. And that is one of his great talents. That is one of the things that really carries him through very difficult times and brings him up to face some very powerful enemies. So flying is a great discovery or a rediscovery for Harry. And flying for us, well, there's a... The, the deeper parallel there is you have to learn to fly if you want to be the chosen one. You have to enjoy a thrill. And there is a personal thrill that comes with the ability to fly. And there is a, there's a dream, there's a recurring dream, or a, what should we say, a, there's a symbolic meaning to the dream where you're flying. And maybe you've had this dream where you can fly. If you've learnt to lucid dream, then that's actually one of the chapters in your development. That's one of the stages in the progress of learning to lucid dream. Because when you learn to lucid dream, you start having the power to do anything, anything that you can imagine. And one of the main things that you imagine doing is flying. Like, wow, I can fly around. Woo, woo. So that takes, well, it takes the thirst for the thrill. It takes an intuition that, well, I should be able to fly. And you do need to remember that, well, flying is an important thing. 
So I don't want to say too much at this stage about flying or lucid dreaming, but that's just one thing we should keep in mind, and it's definitely something that comes up. It's definitely a deep part of Harry's learning. And it's not like he's learning something in the sense that he's going to these classes and then the teacher's telling him things and then he's doing it in the way that Hermione and Ron are doing it. No, for him, flying was a, was a talent. Flying is a, a deep thing that he remembers from way back when. And we find out much later that even as a toddler, before he'd been separated from his parents, he had started to fly. He'd had a toy broom. So the significance of doing something well without being taught is very significant. And that's well implied by him catching the rememberald. So as we move on in our plot, what happens is these three friends, Ron, Hermione, and Harry, start to get this idea of someone trying to steal the Philosopher's Stone. Someone's trying to capture the Philosopher's Stone because they work out that it's hidden in the castle and they think it's Snape. They just get, they just get the idea. They just get the feeling. And there are a few little things that indicate that it could be Snape. But they just, they just really get into it. And they say, what can we do? What can we do to stop him? Snape is so evil. And in every story, well, well, Snape is one of our main characters, as you know, for this whole Chronicles. And in an ABC story, you've got good guys and bad guys. Good versus evil. And a large, a large portion of this narrative is that. Good versus evil. But then there are characters where you say, I'm not sure if they're good or they're evil. And in the case of a movie, usually when you have a movie, they are obvious. You can see it. You say, oh, that guy is definitely a bad guy. Oh, this guy is definitely a good guy. But then as the complexity goes, then you say, well, maybe he is a good guy. And sometimes the good guys actually look like bad guys. And the bad guys actually look like good guys. They are red herrings. So is Snape a red herring? Is Snape a bad guy that actually looks like a good guy? Well, for us, we're asking that. We're asking that a lot throughout the series. But for this stage of the narrative, well, these three musketeers, Ron, Harry and Hermione, are just saying, no, he's so bad. There's something wrong with him. And someone lets a... What is it? A gargoyle? Or a giant? No, it's a goblin. Is it a goblin? No, someone lets something. What is the, what is the mythical creature that they let into the dungeon? Troll, that's it. Someone lets a troll into the dungeon. And Ron and Harry and, and Hermione think that it was Snape so that he could go off and try and get the Philosopher's Stone from under the three-headed dog. And they get detention for something and 
Harry ends up having a trip into the woods and he meets a centaur. And the centaur is saying something about, oh, Mars is bright tonight. And Hagrid's sort of like, yeah, those centaurs, they think deep, but they don't let on much. And there are some small little arguments between the centaur and Harry and the older centaur and these sorts of things. And Snape gets this cut on his leg and they're really not sure about what's going on or how they're putting the plot together. And there's even this moment where Harry's out of bed and he runs into Professor McGonagall and she says, what are you doing? And Harry goes to explain this plot that he's got, these sort of ideas that him and his friends have been coming up about Snape stealing the Philosopher's Stone. But just at the right, at the, uh, the, the peak moment where it's his chance to explain it to the teacher, he stops himself. Almost like, oh, this, this would just sound so stupid to you. This would sound so wrong. This can't be right. And that's exactly right, because it is a far-fetched story. It is a far-fetched narrative that he's running around chasing, but he's totally wrong. And yet when he has the chance to really face it and explain it to the teacher of McGonagall, he doesn't go through with it. And he could have just sat down with McGonagall and talked this through and said, now look, here's, here's our theory. And even that would be enough probably. Harry would have realized, hang on, what I'm explaining doesn't make any sense now that I explain it to you. It only makes sense when I'm with my two other friends and we're all conspiring around. So nonetheless, the three friends decide they're going to go into the chamber to get the Philosopher's Stone because Dumbledore's been called away and they figured out that tonight's the night that Snape's going to have his chance to steal it. So they think the best thing they should do is go and steal it first and then it will be safe with them. And there's a moment where they're sneaking out of the dormitory and their other friend Neville stands up to them. And this is commended in the end quite well as a very big act of bravery. And it's very funny how this is done in the movies because Neville is sort of shaking and worried and he's very nervous. And he's a very, I mean, this character Neville, he's a very strange character, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a boof. He's a bit of a dud. He's sort of, he's sort of like a Dudley, but innocent. He's sort of just like, he's always tripping over. He's always forgetting things. You know, he lost his toad. He's always nervous. He's just, he's, he's a bit of an idiot. He's a bit, he's a bit annoying, really. And, and he's quite harmless. We can see that he's harmless. Like, he's not a bully like Malfoy is or anything like that. And he has this moment where he stands up to his friends. And Hermione just puts this one spell on her. And he falls to the floor. It's very funny how it's done in the movie. But that act of bravery, and Dumbledore quite wisely points out that an act of bravery in the face of your 
enemies is one thing, but an act of bravery in the face of your friends is another. And that shows that there's something in this character that is very deep. And we find there is a lot more to Neville and the arc, the journey that Neville goes on in his story of coming of age is critical. It's very important. And even there's something in the name. Neville. Now, when we, when we talk about fantasy writing, fantasy stories, there is this thing where you sometimes name a character what they are. In the case of Dudley the Dud. And it's not all characters that are like that. Some of them just have a sound like Snape is a bit of a snake. But they don't all apply. So Hermione doesn't apply entirely like that. I don't think. I'm not, I'm not sure. I could be wrong. But in the case of Neville, this name Neville does have a deeper meaning. Because Neville has an etymology to it, which is no evil. And evil has associated words with it, such as the devil. And devil does sound like Neville. And also, the other side of the same coin to devil is divine. Or in Sanskrit, it's deva. So you have divine and devil and evil. And they're all very closely related. And I take it to mean that, well, that no evil is Neville. There is no evil in him. And that's something to keep in mind. Because this character does become more complex and we do find out more about him as the story unfolds. I think that's probably enough for us to carry on with our plot now. So Neville stands up and he says no to his friends. You can't go out. But they say, no, we're going out anyway. And then they go into the room to face a three-headed dog and they go through some tricks and it's a escape room with, you know, there's flying keys and they have to do these riddles and they have to do the plant that's going to eat them and there's the chess game and there's a whole bunch of things they have to get through and oh there's something I forgot but that's right we'll get to it in a moment and they go on and Harry then Harry and Hermione well Ron gets cut out in the chess game and Harry and Hermione get to the potions room which is the last room And it's a bit of a riddle, which is there's seven bottles or something like that. And some of them will take, one of them will take you forward. One of them will take you back and one will be a poison and one will do this to you and one will do that to you. So it's that classic test of which potion should I take? Which bottle should I take? And the information is there. It's written down. The instructions are there. But it's just a matter of logic. And it's quite it's quite clever that in this scene, Hermione says, it's simple logic. Most wizards don't have an ounce of it. 
and that's very true. If you talk to a wizard or you talk to a certain new age person, if you talk to a certain spiritual person, it might be that they don't have much logic. It might be that they're not rational. Now, whether that means they're post-rational or pre-rational, well, that's a bit of an intellectual tangle, which we don't really need to get into just yet. But it's quite clever that magic is one thing and logic is another. And the reason Hermione is so brilliant is because she has both. It's because she can think with logic. And I actually think the I think the scene of the potions bottles was deleted or it wasn't in the main film. It was like an extra scene film in the films. I don't remember. Maybe it was in the films. But anyway, that doesn't matter. The point is that magic and logic are diametrically opposed in many ways. And the person that has both is the one that will succeed. And Harry goes through the last room to find Professor Quirrell. And Professor Quirrell is standing in front of the mirror of Erised. Erised. It might be the mirror of Erised. Er, er, I said. And there's a lot in this scene. Because all at once, Harry's assumption that it was Snape trying to take the Philosopher's Stone is popped. His bubble is popped. And it's actually Quirrell. Quivering Quirrell. And we find out very quickly that actually the Dark Lord Voldemort himself is possessing Quirrell. And this chapter is called The Man with Two Faces. And there's, some, there's a significance to that. Because the man who was all quivering and cowering has two faces, which means that his other face is... Well, something very different. When we say a man is two-faced, it means he treats you one way and he feels about you a different way. Or he says one thing to your face and another thing behind your back. Or one minute he's treating you one way, one way and another he's treating you another. That's what we normally mean by a two-faced man. And if we try and say, well, is Snape two-faced? We thought Snape was going to be here. We thought Snape was going to be the bad guy trying to steal the stone. And then we can say, well, no, not at this stage in the narrative. At this stage in the narrative, it appears that Snape just doesn't like Harry. And Snape just is a mean man. He's just a slimy, mean, dark man. But he's not trying to hide it. He's not two-faced. Snape is very much open about 
his dislike of Harry. At least in this stage of the narrative, we find out more. There is more complexity to these characters as we go along. But in this stage, it seems like Snape is what he says he is. And in a sense, that makes him more trustworthy than someone like Quirrell who's two-faced. And we could say, well, it's not Quirrell's fault. He's been overtaken by the Dark Lord. He's been possessed. And well, that is something to consider about evil possessing the innocent. And it might be that, well, all along Quirrell was innocent. And Harry comes into this scene where he sees Lord Voldemort and Quirrell and this mirror of Erised. And this is the last moment, this is the last barrier between the stone and the evil lord. And Harry has actually encountered this mirror before. He came across this mirror when he was out and about. And it was in a sort of dusty old room all by itself. And he came across it by himself. And he walked up to it and sat down and took a look into this magical mirror. And in this mirror, as he sat there looking at it, he saw his father. And he looked a little bit longer. And as he looked a little bit longer, he saw his mother. And he sat there, seeing very clearly, as clear as ever, his dead parents that he'd never known, standing right next to him. And his mother is doing something of tremendous significance. There is something happening to her which is tremendously significant and needs to be very deeply understood. She is standing there, looking at Harry, and she is smiling. And at the same time as she is smiling, she is crying. And when we talk about emotion... Generally, we say there are four parts to emotions. We can say there are very positive emotions and there are very negative emotions. And there are also very intense emotions and there are very light emotions. And what Harry's mother is experiencing as she's smiling and crying is something well far beyond intense emotions. 
what she's feeling is something so far beyond any explanation of emotion that you can understand, that we can understand. And in many ways, she's feeling every emotion at once. Regret with gratitude. Sadness with joy. Beauty with pain. Happiness with grief. And at some point in your life, if you make the journey to the right places in the right way and you open yourself, you will find a moment where you are crying and smiling at the same time. And that will be a tremendously significant moment. It will be an extraordinary moment of beauty. And you can understand why Harry's mother feels this way, to be looking at him, to see him going to school, to see him making friends, to see what sort of boy he's already grown into. Just to see her own son, just for a few moments, is enough for him, for her to feel these things. Harry, well, he says, what is this mirror all about? And he gets his friend, Ron, to come and see his parents. Because Harry believes that, well, if Ron looks into the mirror, he'll see the same thing. And Ron sees, well, he's head of the Quidditch Cup and he's head boy and he's got all these great grades and he looks really good. And Ron says, do you think this tells the future? And you realize that we used the, the analogy of the mirror when we were deciding how to approach even talking about these very books. Because here, two people are looking into the mirror and seeing totally different things. And that's exactly what happens when two people read a book. They see totally different things. And Harry and Ron can't work out what the magic is. They can't work out what it is. And Harry comes back time and time again and starts obsessing over this, over this mirror. And one time, Dumbledore turns up. And Dumbledore says that the mirror shows what you want. It shows your deepest desire. What would the, the man that has everything that he wants would see himself exactly as he is? And Harry asks, well, what do you see, sir? And Dumbledore sort of says, oh, just, just a pair of socks, holding a pair of socks. He sort of brushes it off. And well, actually, that's an example of an adult not telling the child the truth, trying to shelter the child because we find out later that Dumbledore has certain things that he regrets he has certain things that he desires and he is only human but that's for later in the story 
And Dumbledore really impresses on Harry that you can waste away in front of this mirror. It's really just a dream. And he says, this mirror will give us neither knowledge or truth. And there's something to be said about knowing what your deepest desire is. There is. I think there is something to know there. But to follow a dream, well, that is not really a real life, is it? I can understand why people get so caught up looking into that mirror, just looking at their desires. If it's as something as powerful as a mother that is smiling and crying at the same time, looking back at her only son. So the second time Harry comes, well, not the second time, the, 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 new, the, the, ne- the next time Harry comes across the mirror, he's got Lord Voldemort standing in front of it, and he sees himself holding the Philosopher's Stone, but he can't get it. And then Harry does the trick of wanting the stone, but to not use it, which is part of the conditions, the terms and conditions of getting the stone. And then it turns up in his pocket. And then there's a showdown and someone, I think, does Dumbledore turn up to save the day or not really? Oh no, this is what happens. Harry has the touch of love in his blood from his mother, which then burns Quirrell. And that's something that uh, that Voldemort hadn't of anticipated in his plot. So Harry does save the day. And, well, Harry wakes up in the hospital ward and he has a conversation with Dumbledore. And it's a bit of a complicated conversation because Dumbledore doesn't want to entirely just say, well, good job. But Harry did save the day in some ways. And other parts of the conversation Harry can't quite follow. Like he actually asks Dumbledore, who's Grindelwald? And Dumbledore has to say to Harry, well, there are certain things that I can't explain to you, Harry. There are certain things you can't know just yet. And he says it in a few different ways. And there's a few backs and forths in this conversation. And we really ask ourselves, well, this is the beginning of a relationship. And more broadly, Harry's relationship to adults. It's not just Dumbledore, it's just Harry and older people. Which is, how much information should they tell you? And you see, this is the exact same echo which happened between Harry and the Dursleys. So the Dursleys weren't telling Harry everything about his parents. And now, the entire year later at Hogwarts, Harry's in the hospital wing and there's certain things that Dumbledore isn't telling him. Now, they're different things and they're for different reasons. 
And Dumbledore, at this stage in the plot, is a very loving and caring person. And Harry definitely trusts him. But it just gets back to this point again and again that there is a difference between what Harry knows, what he's experiencing, and what people tell him, and how other people help him to make sense of it. There's also this side plot of, well, the Philosopher's Stone, they decide to, the the creator, Nicholas Flamel, decides to do away with it. And then Harry says, well, doesn't that mean he'll die? Because he won't be have the elixir of life. And Dumbledore says, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. And the year ends, and Harry Potter gets on the train with his friends, and they change back into their muggle clothes. And this really accentuates the difference of the worlds. Now this time he's gone from the station back to the Dursleys. And it is totally different for him to go from the world of magic back to where he was before is a complete flip around. His clothing is different. His understanding is different. And the other thing is that he realizes he can't really say anything to the Dursleys about this world. They're not going to want to hear it. There's also this point that I'll say quickly now is that Harry never really gets to process the fact that he got it wrong about Snape. And this is something that he holds on to for quite some time. But there's never a moment where Harry actually sits down and thinks through, now, I spent all that time, all year, I was thinking Snape was the bad guy, and it turned out to be Quirrell, Professor Quirrell. So that's something to understand. But back on this point of going home to the Dursleys, he says this funny thing, which is, oh, the Dursleys don't know that I can't use magic. Which means that Harry realizes that <laughs> he can use the he can use their fear of this magical world to his advantage without even having to actually do it. <laughs> and it's very funny. It's a very funny ending to the book. And it's true. I mean, when someone comes from another world, they speak differently. And when someone has even a hint of knowing how different that world is, there can be a lot of fear. And I say that from personal experience as well. Now, I've never been to the Esalen Institute, and I've never been to the Isha Foundation. But I have been to a mystery school, and I've spoken about that before. This is not the place to share my story. This is not the time we're talking about Harry Potter. But just to summarize this book, I just want to say one more time 
that Hogwarts does exist. It is a real place. And I don't mean the... <laughs> I can hear you saying, yes, it's a, it's a theme park. <laughs> Harry Potter World is the corporation theme park like Disneyland. No, I don't mean that. I mean the metaphorical comparison and the, the comparison between real human beings like Fritz Perls and Sadhguru. Sadhguru is still alive. Sadhguru still has his working. Now, if you, if you think about Sadhguru and what his schedule is like, it is magical. He is working as a wizard. Because he has those 200, sorry, those 2 million people working for him across multiple locations all around the world. And his schedule is basically a tour schedule. So he's very busy. And a lot of the meetings that he would do would be to walk in, say a few things, and then it's up to everyone else to get it done. You realize that he's saying a few words and the people working for him get it done. This is just the same as what Dumbledore does at the Great Feast. Speak a few words and magic happens. So that's the end of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And there were, I think there was a different title for that book as well. I think at some point in some countries it was called The Sorcerer's Stone. And it wasn't always called The Philosopher's Stone. But I'm not entirely sure about that. So we can finish it up with a few minutes of silence. So if it's comfortable for you to do so, Stop what you're doing, close your eyes, sit down somewhere, and just be silent for a few minutes. And that's all I have to say for now.